Welcome to the I Am Winter Solstice Symposium and Fire Tenders Gathering. We are happy you are here. Please find the full schedule at IamSymposium.com. This was in 1995, and we were looking for fossils. And in fact, we found fabulous things. We found the missing link between humans and apes, which is called Artipithecus ramidus. It's been heavily published, including a a cover on National Geo in 2010 in July. But, you know, I was out there getting baked on these hillsides, these arid hillsides, like at 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning. It was like being in a convection oven. And I began to wish for a breeze, if Hmm. I could put it that way. And when I thought about this, you know, I just kind of put the thought into motion. And within 10, 15 minutes, a breeze would arrive. And then there were the dust devils. Then there were the dust devils. I remember uh, when we had this, this project, which was down at a sand river, and we would pump water out of the sand river to wash these sediments through very fine screens to extract very small microfossils. And every day, about one o'clock in the afternoon, this huge dust devil would come dancing down the sand river and it would pause and then it would go through our camp and it would blow everybody's laundry and towels up into the thorn trees and fill everybody's tents with dust. And it did this day after day at the same time. So one day I got fed up and I got out in the middle of the sand river and I looked at this dust devil, which was about 500 feet high. And I said, you know, I called it a genie. I assumed that it was a gin. And I said, hey, Jenny, you know, I shouted <laughs> at the top of my lungs, stop, stop cruising through the camp, you know, and I went through my request and so forth and so on and told the, the dust devil what it was doing. And it paused. And instead of racing into the camp, it jumped on me. And suddenly I was in the midst of the dust devil and my hat, as I recall, went up about 500 feet in the air until it came down again. And the Turkish geologist that was working with shouted, ah, the genie hears you and obeys, you know, that sort of thing. And after that, the dust devil never went through the camp again. Now, this is rather interesting. But, you know, what came to me uh, when I was writing uh, The Reenchantment was a chapter called Encounters with the North Wind. And, you know, there was a time when I was teaching in Sacramento, and it was one of those hot summers where it never came below 100 degrees for like three weeks. You know, everybody's air conditions were working double time. And in the daytime, it would go up to 120 degrees. And I began to yearn for the north wind. This was in September. And one day I looked out at my study and the the trees and the birch tree outside were dancing and I knew the wind had come. So I went out and it was the north wind. And this wonderful cool breeze was sweeping through me, sweeping through my hair, you know. uh, And I just stood there in the neighborhood with my arms out, my eyes closed, and just welcome the north wind back and let it blow through my soul. And it was about 15 minutes in when I opened my eyes. And as I've written, you know, I lived in a very conservative neighborhood at that time, and my neighbors were staring at me. They were not reassured. But that afternoon, I went to Sierra College where I was teaching a class called Magic, Witchcraft, and Religion. And I don't know what I talked about on that afternoon, but that same afternoon, a girl came up to me, a woman, came up to me after class and said she had psychic abilities. And she wondered if I knew that there were others beside the students who came to hear what I had to say. And I looked at her and I said, others? And I made encouraging gestures. She said, yeah, usually I see them in black and white or as shadows. And I believe that they're the spirits of of dead people who come to hear what you have to say. But on this particular afternoon, she told me there was this huge dark form with light sparkling inside mm-hmm. it, like sparklers. And this huge dark form noticed that she could see it. It became very differential and assured her through emotional pulses. This wasn't happening in the King's English. It was through emotional pulses that the message came through that it wasn't there to cause any trouble. It was interested in me. And it had a message for me. It said, 
you must keep writing. You have more books you have to write. Now, this was like 20 years ago. And so I did. I kept writing. And she said, you know, when I received the message, I looked at this huge dark form, and then it wasn't there anymore. It was just simply gone. But it was years later, when I was at Brightonbush Hot Springs in Oregon, that we were going to do a transpersonal healing ritual as part of a five-day workshop that evening. And this was in July, when it was really hot. And the wind came on this occasion, and I've come to perceive it as the healing wind. Um, that's the way I experience it. So I have this, this strange connection with the winds, as you do. And I don't know how many shamanists, how many shamanic practitioners are actually engaged with the winds, but I seem to be. And it really gives people an idea of what's out there waiting for them if, you know, they choose to follow the calling that they often get. Because, you know, haven't you always discovered that those people who become spiritually powerful are invited? And they're usually invited by having some kind of mind-blowing experience, dream, or synchronicity. And if they're paying attention, they understand that it's an invitation to see if they're ready. At least that's my feeling. Well, you know, and um, uh, those but many of you don't know this, but... One of my first invitations was when I was listening to a lecture at, that Hank gave. He did. We were at the La Quinta Hotel with the Ions Conference, and and he, the first day we did a whole sacred journey thing, which I I've since used a lot because I just love that journey to see what's in your garden and see what you can change in your garden. But then the next day he was giving a lecture. I mean a lecture. He was up in front of two, three hundred people, and he goes, "Oh, well, let me just rattle everyone in to see if." Uh, see that you're all here, right? Well, as soon as he started to rattle, I went to Egypt or wherever I was taken that day and I was totally dismembered, sewn back, stuff was taken out, sewn back shut and my friends literally carried me from the room and put me into, poured me into bed, I would say, where I then stayed for three days. Did have an invitation into the garden where I was given the job, although I had no idea what the job was that I accepted. Now I know, but then I didn't. And I, Hank, I never even realized that this was my call to the shaman until I was sitting on the shaman's cave one day with Sandra, and she said, "Oh yeah, that's when you were called." And I didn't. All the years of all the training, it never occurred to me that that was the call. The call. Well, you know, as most of your listeners are very much aware, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell who I never had the opportunity to meet, but I heard him lecture once at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And he lectured from nine to five with slides, and he never looked at his notes, and he just kept everybody just enthralled. You know, so he was the one who really revealed something very important to me when I read his book, Hero of a Thousand Faces. In the very first introductory section, he talks about the monomyth. Uh, the monomyth, the one story that all of our stories are, so to speak. And the monomyth is about the hero's journey. It's about somebody like you, somebody like me in the middle of our life, you know, with bills to pay and, um, you know, life as it is. And suddenly something happens, and the first stage of the journey is called the call to adventure, the call to join the club, the call. And it's kind of like, you know, remember that poem by Robert Frost, of the two paths in the wood, and when they diverged? And one was the straight, narrow, well-beaten, well-grown path, and the other was overgrown and jungly and gnarly, and it looked like there might be lions and tigers and bears out there. Now, the hero is the one who recognizes this as a kind of invitational event. Now, society gives you every reason not to do it. Society doesn't want you to be a mystic. Society wants you to pay your taxes, vote in your elections, uh, make your car payments on time, get mortgages, go into debt. That's what society wants. But the mystic, 
the proto-mystic or proto-shamanist is the one who understands that the call to adventure could be life-changing, and they decide to go for it. And usually they take that other path that's all overgrown and gnarly because it looks really interesting. Now, what happens is this precipitates the shamanist or mystic awakening into the stage of initiation. And the stage of initiation is what Hale Makua, the the, uh, Hawaiian kahuna elder with whom I was in a friendship relationship over the last eight years of his life, used to say, you know, there are four bowls that we have to drink from in each life. The first bowl is the call. And if we're in the positive polarity, we practice acceptance. If we're in the negative, rejection. Now, when you accept the call, the second bowl is the seed of initiation. It's what Makua called the school of hard knocks. And people's lives can unravel in truly spectacular ways, often in a very short period of time. This is the stage of initiation. It's almost as though the gods want to see what you're made of and how you respond to certain situations. But you know, those situations are events that we set up for ourselves. But when you're in the school of hard knocks, do you know what the the lesson is? What? How to lose gracefully. That's it. You know, we, we won't mention any soon-to-be uh, extant uh, <laughs> crisis of leadership on rolling wheels or whatever. But, you know, the fact is how to lose gracefully. You know, it's about getting knocked down and getting up again, getting knocked down and getting up again. You know, it's, you know, the spirits take this very well. They hold on to this kind of stuff. Well, the third bowl is where we're going to get smart. That's where we achieve the goal of the quest, whatever the quest is. And usually it happens in response to the discovery that we have supernatural friends. That usually brings us to the end of the stage of initiation, but sometimes it's the beginning of the next stage. I mean, there's no way of knowing. But, you know, we're going to get smart, and that means that we achieve the goal of the quest, whatever that quest was. And then finally, the fourth bowl is about this. It's about silence. We have to maintain silence so that we will not uh, deprive others of the power that they have access to when they make the discovery for themselves. You know, it's one thing to hear for people like you and I talking about stuff, but, you know, on the other hand, it's very inspirational and it encourages people to awaken their own inner mystic or to develop or grow mystically. This is what it's all about, I think, in the end. I think, you know, as we travel across time, growing, increasing, and becoming more in response to each life as we live it. What it's really all about is the refinement of character. The refinement of character. Each one of us has an immortal core of character that we've been developing over countless lifetimes. And we either to contribute in that uh, to that core in this life or not. You know, it's all about choice, isn't it? And this has to do with the egoic mental soul. That's why the last thing you want to do is get rid of your ego. But you have to downshift into your physical body soul. And that isn't getting rid of your ego. It's just stepping in to the third member of your soul complex. This is something we talk about in workshops and in books and so forth and so on. One of the strange things that I discovered along the way as I was living in Africa, living with traditional people, sometimes for years at a time, one thing I discovered is that virtually everybody understands that we have not one, but three distinct souls. 
And, you know, the um, Hawaiians understood we have three souls. The Inuits, the Inuits were hunters, three souls. The Cherokee, the Lakota, three souls. The Shuar in the Amazon, three souls. The Vodou people of Haiti, three souls. Now, this got lost somewhere along the line, and it was transformed into the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I think. The Holy Ghost would be your higher self, the Father would be the ego, and the Son would be the subconscious. It's essentially an understanding of the tripartite level of the self. You know, this is something that people don't know very much about in the shamanic tradition, but I've been trying to get it out there. You know, that's our job. But, you know, the fire is also a wonderful symbol for this time of year because, you know, when you burn a piece of wood, there's fire. That's actually the fire of our star. And it's in that wood. And you're releasing that fire, that energy. And who knows where it goes next? It's energy. Now, that's not a small thing. You know, when you light a candle... Like this yesterday for, or for the solstice, I guess it was Monday, I came out in the dark and Jill was already up and she'd lit two candles. She'd created fire. First thing she did on the solstice because the light is now returning. Well, you know, um, let me share a little bit of information for you and then, you know, we can, we can throw it back and forth. Over the years that we've been doing the elemental spirit work, uh, we've discovered that fire is the original element that was present at the beginning and the state to which everything eventually returns. Mm. Now, we're not talking about incinerated. We're talking about your energy. Your energy is your fire. Okay, all your little mitochondria are uh, busily converting ATP to ADP and the energy that you use is coming from that interaction. Mitochondria, and we're not going to go there. <laughs> all right, the original element that was present at the beginning and at the state to which everything eventually returns, it's present in everything. Everything. It's present in your house. If your house should burn, it's there. It's present in everything, and it's the state that our ancestors are in. That doesn't mean your ancestors are on fire. That means they're merged with their light, their energy, which can maintain a kind of mosaic collective pattern in response to the lives that you live life after life. That's a nice thought, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, fire opens the doorway to the levels of the spirit world. I'm talking about energy now. I'm talking about light. And it allows us to communicate with the past, the present, and the future. For those of you interested in time traveling. Now, Fire is also about passion. It's about passion. When you're in an impassioned state with a partner or a horse or, you know, whatever you're impassioned with, you're in a very special state in which your energy, your fire, is flaring. It's flaring. Now, it's not burning you up from the inside, but sometimes it does, you know. You remember uh, all the songs about this back in the 50s. Now, Fire Clan people, I've discovered over the years, and others like Maladoma have discovered this as well, that in the positive polarity, Fire Clan people tend to be restless, emotional, and strong dreamers. They tend to be restless, emotional, and strong dreamers. Fire people live on the edge between humans and their ancestors, and they can go back and forth between the two worlds. 
So shamans fit nicely into this category because shamanists live in two worlds. The world of things seen and the world of things hidden. And of course, the indigenous people draw no distinction between them. But the, the shamanist is the one who explores and investigates the worlds of things hidden. And it's done in a goal-oriented sense. Now, fire people, their task in the positive polarity is to keep the community and the culture aware of its vital relationship to the other world. Fire is a gateway. Think about the fact that for a million and a half years, human beings and proto-human beings have been sitting around a fire every single night of their lives, staring into the flames, telling stories, doing healing work, doing divination work, shamanizing. You know, children who grow up in a society like that, and it's completely natural for them to have elders who can achieve special states of consciousness when the need requires it. I mean, that's just part of the culture. Now, in the negative polarity, fire people rush ceaselessly with a consumer's mentality, polluting, destroying, and conquering. In the negative polarity, fire people rush ceaselessly with a consumer's mentality, polluting, destroying, and conquering. Now, this brings up the field of economics. Because fire clan people are restless, they cultivate scarcity to promote production and consumption. That's economics. There's the whole corporate world right there. They cultivate scarcity so that they can instill a kind of fear in people to get what they want or need or are entitled to right now. Now, there's another negative aspect of fire clan people, which is very concern-making. A fire culture in the negative polarity is often fascinated by violence. And in such a society, violence is highly marketable as it stimulates the culture as a whole. We're talking about the military. It stimulates the culture as a whole. You know, post-World War II was an incredible boom in response to the military. It was unbelievable. I don't think we've had one like that since. So a fire culture is often fascinated by violence. And in such a society, violence is highly marketable. Our, fo our films and our streaming events on television feature a lot of violence. In fact, sex and violence are the two elements that you have to have to make a blockbuster movie. And violence is very important. You know, there's no question about this. Now, this means that in the negative polarity, a fire culture is a war culture. A fire culture is a war culture. And conflicts, solutions to conflicts can only be resolved by more fire. We even have a term called friendly fire. <laughs> now, back to the positive polarity. Such a culture that we've just sort of talked about very briefly requires a lot of water to heal. Because when fire goes out of control, it consumes. Fire also produces when you think it transforms from one state to another, virtually everything. Virtually everything. So in the positive polarity, a person with vision and passion who's actively involved in the world embodies fire. And so each of us needs to nourish the ancestral fire within, so that we can stay in touch with our dreams and our visions. And that ancestral fire is your energy body, 
which connects you to all of your former selves as well as all of your former maternal and paternal ancestors. This is not a small thing. This is not generally understood as well. So as a gatekeeper, the gift to help people dream, the gift to help people dream or waken their intuitive or emotional selves seems to be associated with the gateway connected with fire. But you know, there's a lot more when you consider it. The fire clan people have really produced the world that we live in. They've created the world that we live in. When we started to actually, actually modify nature in response to our needs through the invention of agriculture about 11, 12,000 years ago, you know, the population has, has just expo exponentially increased ever since that time. And it's allowed populations to expand dramatically into all sorts of areas of the world that were not available before. Consider Steve Jobs, all right, classic fire clan person. Look at what he did. Look at how he changed the world as a fire clan person. So fire clan people in the positive polarity are very valuable. And Americans, I think, and um, the Yoruba people in Nigeria, I lived with for two years, and the Dasanich and Turkana peoples of Ethiopia. You know, these are people who had a fairly strong um, contingency of fire clan people as well as the other clans. And of course, the fire clan people are the warriors. They're the soldiers. They're the ones who protect and guard. They're the ones who create. They make things. All right? Uh, so the fire clan people are very important. Very important. You know, you might sort of zero in on the negative and think about all the violence. This is all about choice, I think. And we are now at a place in our soul's evolution on Earth where we have the opportunity to step up and into the next cycle of ages. The um, Hawaiian elder Makua used to say that the last cycle of ages, which lasted for 26,000 years, it started in the Stone Age, was all about separation. And the first was the separation of humans from nature. Big, big mistake. Big mistake. And then the manipulation of nature. So, 26,000 years, it was all about separation. So I remember we asked him, well, what about the cycle that's coming up, the next cycle of ages? He said, the time of separation is over. This is about connection. But we have to choose it. We have to choose to step up and create a world in which everything is connected to everything else. Steve Jobs helped a lot, don't you think? Yeah? And the work that we do as shamanists, of course, we're actually using the dream field as a method of getting around from place to place, of communication, of doing healing work, this is not a small thing, because we're the dreamers. So fire clan people and shamans, I think a lot of shamans tend to be fire clan people. But remember, we embody them all. Nobody can be just one without the presence of the others. So this is a little fire clan uh, work this morning, and it's a very good thing to do. I went to the crater, to the volcano crater. Um, in my visioning. And I have a relationship with Pelly, as most of you know. Uh, I'm not claiming anything here, but I have written about it in my Spirit Walker trilogy. She's in every single book. She is in every single book because those books are really about how I was enchanted here on the island. And I live on an island with a massive active volcano right in the middle of it. We're only 20 miles from the summit, but it's all uphill. <laughs> so, you know, this island is alive. It has a live spirit in the middle of it, and she periodically turns over 
or stirs or goes down in Takao or one of the other provinces. So what I tried to do today is I tried to establish contact again because she's been in meditation for two years. And I'm trying to get her, if she's going to fill that crater and it's going to flow out of the crater, I'm trying to give her directions on where to let it flow towards the southeast, you know, because there are no people down there. There are no communities down there. And you could always use more landscape, you know. She added 700 acres to the island in the last big blast. So she's a very interesting being. You know, sometimes people perceive her as a woman dressed in white. Sometimes she's a beautiful young Hawaiian woman. Sometimes she's a crone. Sometimes she has a little dog with her. That's called a poi dog out here. <laughs> I don't know if that means that the animals were once made into poi, but that's what they're called, <laughs> poi dogs. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you run into Pele and you're dreaming, be very respectful. She likes flowers. So you can always create a bouquet, a dream bouquet right on the spot and offer it to her. She'll be just delighted. Mm, I love that. Okay, this is the fire elemental. A little recap here before we start to drum. You know, achieve a relaxed position in a chair, in a couch, on the floor, and on a bed, or wherever you feel relaxed. If you have a headphone, use the headphone. If you're just using your computer, take your computer with you so you can hear the drum. Now, the drum helps us to alter consciousness. And so, as you feel your consciousness shifting into a dreamlike state, it might take about, you know, three or four or five minutes, then go in search of your sacred place in nature, which is special to you. And then experience that place somatically, like you're experiencing it through your body. Once you feel at home there and remember this place, you know, we can dismember things, we can remember things. You're putting it back together. You're actually connecting with the dreaming of that place. Create a fire pit and invite the spirit of fire. And then merge with or connect with the fire spirit and ask what qualities and abilities it carries. What does it mean to be a gatekeeper connected with fire? And what are the gifts conveyed through that gateway? So we'll have about a 15-minute drum. And then five minutes to take some brief notes. And then we'll resume contact. Okay. Couple of clearing breaths now. Couple of clearing breaths. <sighs>
was interesting. <laughs> I had journeyed with you, by the way. Yeah, well, take five. We'll take five. And then we'll resume our, our discussion. Wow, Hank, that was a powerful journey. <laughs> For me, too. I went to the crater. Oh, you did? Huh. I went to the crater. Mm. I had and to burrow in. Again? I had to burrow into my garden, which I've never gone that way before. It's usually a nice door, but I, I felt like I was like the winter weeds still burrowing in. And I came up in a new place in the garden because I guess I hadn't been over there where the, I was going to put the fire. Uh huh. Well, you want to keep it contained. Uh Welcome to the 10th annual I Am Winter Solstice Symposium and Fire Tenders Gathering. We are excited to offer this container for you to celebrate during these darker days of December from December 20th through January 2nd. We will be having live events every day in the Wind Clan. There will also be a recording available for you if you've given us your email address over at IamSymposium.com. And there's an opportunity to purchase this whole series if you don't think you can be with us live. So again, welcome, and we look forward to being with you throughout.